makes us feel like professional podcasters. Yeah. Sort of. Maybe. Not really. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh, oh. The glove don't fit. Oh, oh. You got to equip. Oh, oh. I didn't smoke it. Oh, oh. That's all you're going to get. Oh, oh. I'll never admit. Oh, oh. I never took a hit. Oh, oh. The charges won't stick. Cause Monday morning I'm a brand new man. Tuesday catch me if you can. Wednesday night. Welcome to The Docket, episode 63. My name is Michael Spratt. Hi, this is Emily Tammon. We're in our fancy uh, alternate recording studio. We're recording in your office. It's true. It makes mm-hmm. us feel like professional podcasters. Yeah. Sort of. Maybe. Not really. Um, how you doing? Good. Good, yeah. Just uh, enjoying the hottest days of summer uh, in the end of September. What the hell? I know. I could just... I, I, uh, I texted... Uh, our daughter the other day who was home alone with the dog and I said uh, how's the how's the puppy and she said he's dead and then in brackets not literally <laughs> but he's suffering from the heat too it's true he's uh, black long hair yeah not mm. the most ideal not the most ideal when it's 40 degrees with the humidex um, I did some more stuff you've been busy I did another um, testifying on a government bill yeah I think it. we talked about it on when it was first introduced on one yeah. of the past episodes. The impaired so driving bill. Go listen to all the episodes until you find that one because I don't know which one it is. Yeah, good luck to you. But it's a new impaired driving bill. It really changes impaired driving law, and it's sort of been introduced in tandem with the marijuana bill. So you can't talk about one without the other um, because marijuana seems progressive on one hand and opens up the government to criticisms of being soft on crime, even though there's big problems with that. On the other hand, they can point to this new impaired driving bill and show that they're really cracking down on uh, on impaired driving uh, to deflect some of those criticisms. And it's a bizarro bill. I know. I feel like we should uh, take some time to go through it um, in some more detail uh, because even, I think, in the course of your preparing for your testimony, you uncovered a few really odd characteristics of the bill that I don't think had even really been flagged when we talked about it before, because I remember you saying, like, it can't mean this. It can't. Does it really mean this? And, and it seems that it does. Well, I think it does. And when I was testifying um, on this specific section, um, uh, Rob Nicholson, the conservative justice critic, asked me a question about about the concerns I raised about this really bizarre section that means that the police could charge you days after you were driving, demand a breathalyzer test, you could blow zero, have no blood alcohol because you're driving, they're testing you days after you you allegedly drove, and then through a weird mechanism in, in the new law, it's just sort of mechanically blood alcohol is added to your, for every 30 minutes, they add five milligrams of blood alcohol to say what you would have blown. So it means that if they test you like three days after you drove, you're just presumed to blow like, I don't know, a thousand times the legal <laughs> limit. And, you know, what so, killed. so I was testifying on, on that and Nicholson says, that can't be right. And I and said, if a conservative saying that, you know you're onto something. When I said, I think it's like if you go through and read the bill, that's how it works out. But I hope I'm wrong on it because it's bizarre. Like it's just bizarre. I hope I'm wrong. I can't be right. Please tell me I'm wrong because it makes no sense. Well, it would be 
effectively turning the presumption of innocence on its head because oh, it the bill be, does that in other places too. Yeah, it'd be requiring the accused to prove uh, that he or she wasn't impaired, as opposed to obligating the state to prove that the person was impaired. That there's well, like a deeming provision in the bill that just makes requires the system to presume that you were impaired when there's other than the reasonable grounds required to demand the breath test. And I don't even know why they even bother with the breath test because maybe you drank alcohol yesterday. So three days ago, you're alleged to have been impaired while driving. But if you drank yesterday, how do, I mean, I, I just find that so bizarre. It's bizarro. I mean, there's the, the random stops and random breath tests that they can do without grounds. It's very problematic, especially when you look at police dealing with racialized and marginalized community. I mean, if you've followed the carting or street check debate, um, and stats, if you follow just the marijuana arrests that have been disproportionately um, targeting, you know, marginalized and, and visible minorities, um, you know, we can all sort of see how this sort of unchecked police power to pull over anyone at any time for any reason and demand a breathalyzer test, who, who's going to be affected by that the most. But then this bill, actually, it's not an offense anymore to be impaired while driving. It's an offense to be impaired within two hours after driving. And then the accused has to prove then that they weren't impaired by driving. Or they to, weren't driving. Or they weren't driving. And like, so it's just a bizarre, messy situation. So I spent a lot of time trying to wrap my head around that. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, and other than that, just, you know, teaching. Actually, everything I just said about the presumption of innocence, if my students are listening, that's what we were talking about yesterday. So it's top of mind for me. Um, but I'm excited about the interview that we did today. Do you know what I'm more excited about? What? I got a fancy new computer. You got a new laptop. I know. It's very exciting. And do you know what's even better? What? I'm playing a uh, computer game from 2010. You're really hip with what the young people are doing. I hear all the young people are playing Civilization Five. <laughs> it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, I'm not excited about the, those things at all, but I am really excited about the interview that we did. Yeah. So we spoke uh, with Layla Attar, who um, is a f- like fascinating and insightful uh, person to talk to about harm prevention, harm reduction, um, and she's a great advocate, which is uh, it's a good time to talk about that, because in Ottawa and across the country, we're talking about opioids, fentanyl, overdoses, drug policy, decriminalization, marijuana. Um, and in Ottawa specifically, we have a safe consumption site opening, um, an emergency approved temporary safe consumption site opening, and then sort of a pop-up underground um, gray market safe consumption site that seems to be doing really good work, and Layla's involved in that. And yeah, and she's an amazing young woman. She has lived experience that she shares in the hopes of changing the minds of policymakers and others about uh, those of whom that are not super open to harm reduction measures. And uh, she's been engaging with young people. She's been engaging with families who's, who have lost loved ones. She's been volunteering with Overdose Prevention Ottawa. So she was able to tell us a bit about that and share her views from the perspective of her own lived experience regarding some of the shortcomings of even the very progressive harm reduction models that are in place currently. So always looking to improve, always looking to remove barriers um, in order to keep people alive long enough, um, hopefully to eventually get them into treatment um, or not. But um, I was really grateful for the opportunity to talk with her because it's a different perspective than we're necessarily used to getting. And if you listen to the interview, which you should, you'll find out if uh, Jagmeet Singh is as handsome and dapper in person as he appears to be online. And whether in fact he is immune to sweating. 
I don't know. These You'll are the top. To, these are the important topics of the day. Burning issues. They really are. Um, so uh, let's just uh, throw it over to the interview. Let's do it. Let's do that. Okay. Alrighty. Um, so we're recording. Oh, look at that. We're yeah, just, recording. just on. Just warming up. This is the, there's no cold open here. It's just a gradual, <laughs> right, gradual <laughs> slide in. you find out that the recorder is on. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I'm really excited that we have, um, I'm going to call you a special guest. Okay. Yeah. Because I think it's really special because the work that you've been doing um, has been amazing. And uh, your name is Layla Attar. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so the reason why I wanted you to come in is to talk about sort of the opioid crisis, overdoses, harm uh, reduction, harm prevention, and specifically in Ottawa, we have sort of a crazy time with yep. a bunch of different <laughs> harm reduction, safe injection sites opening up at the same time. So I thought it'd be great to have you in because I know you have a really unique and um, honest and like really authentic perspective that I think is, is very much needed. Yeah, I'm excited to share share whatever I can, yeah. Well, maybe you could just start by letting us know how you came to be involved in the harm reduction movement and maybe just so our listeners have a bit of context about your personal experience. Yeah, so I mean, I guess um, my experience kind of started, I would say, well, I mean, I, I was using drugs actively and was uh, kind of hooked in addiction from age 16 to 19, and that uh, kind of came to a crashing halt when I did overdose uh, in November of 2016. So after that point, I ended up working so that I would be able to, you know, get myself into recovery and worked on all of those things. And then a few months later, I just started noticing how many young people especially were dying by because of the fentanyl crisis. So that kind of uh, instigated me to want to reach out and start doing some advocacy work. And I tried to get into the school board and start talking to kids and was brushed off, essentially, um, and told to contact third party organizations. So I just decided I'd start advocating on my own. and. That led me to doing a cross-Canada tour where I spoke with families that have been impacted by the grief of losing a child to overdose and fentanyl experts and leading advocates and whatnot um, in the downtown, volunteering in the downtown east side. And then that's led me back to Ottawa where I'm now involved with like the overdose prevention site and just getting my foot in the door and all the different aspects that multidisciplinary things that come into play with when we're dealing with this crisis. I'd be interested to hear, um, because you mentioned that you were able to access recovery services. Um, I've read some of um, the statements that you've made publicly regarding the nexus between your addiction struggles and mental health. And um, I was wondering if you could speak to kind of the uh, shortcomings and services that are available in particular for young people who are struggling with mental health, who are struggling with addictions and are motivated to get clean or address their mental health issues and the barriers that um, are sometimes present for people looking to take that first step. Yeah, well, I mean, right now, like, I mean, there's just such a huge lack of treatment um, and detox beds available, like, within Ottawa, within Ontario, I mean, across Canada, really. But, yeah, it's a huge problem because, I mean, we'll see kids that are looking to get help and they want to reach out or their parents are trying to help them get into treatment. And you're looking at, like, a one to six months wait for just, like, for residential publicly funded treatment. And the other hand of that is you can go through the private healthcare system and pay about $600 a day for treatment. So, I mean, a lot, I mean, obviously, the general middle class and anyone else can't really afford that. So, I mean, we have just a huge disparity of the resources that are available for people. And then, you can know, there is outpatient services, but even with that, it takes, you know, it can take you a month to get into with a counselor. So, there's just, I mean, I think it should be in a system where if you ask for help once, you get that help right away. Because mm -hmm. if someone is willing to take that step and 
you know, move on with their recovery and start that process, they need to do it right away. If you might make them feel helpless or hopeless and make them wait for not like a month, that could be a death sentence, you know? So that's what we're looking at right now in Ottawa. And that's just something I'm trying to, you know, we need more funds don't like there so people can get more help. I've definitely noticed that with sort of my clients and family members who contact me, um, that even when everyone wants to take advantage of treatment, and sometimes it takes a long time to get to that point, like it can be years or, I mean, some people never get to that point, but even when you're at that point, families are like, okay, now is the window of opportunity, everyone's ready to go, and if you don't have the money, you can't get any treatment, and then I have parents calling me saying, do you know, do you think I should, I've, my son, I found some drugs, should I call the police and get him arrested and then he can go to jail and he'll, will he get better treatment there? And the answer is no, because we don't provide any treatment yeah. in jail. So it's one yeah. of these sort of like vicious cycles. And then if you miss that window of opportunity, it can, it can be really hard to sort of get all of those factors into place again that, that exactly. makes someone sort of ready for treatment. Yeah, absolutely. It's just like, I mean, once you're at that point, you're like, okay, I'm ready to move on with it. And then you're told, well, sorry, you got to wait six months. Like that feels like a lifetime so what do you I mean it's hard for someone to just say okay well I'm not going to use for six months like even though I've been hooked in this cycle of I mean like it just seems so counterproductive like we need to be have accessible services and they we shouldn't be playing phone tag with people on a bunch of different like there should be a continuum of care and then it's just bang 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 you're into treatment or you get the help that you need to accommodate your needs yeah, you would think it's like if you get hit by a car or break yeah. your leg you don't you I mean there's emergency services available and it seems like addiction and treatment should be an emergency service that's offered when when people need it and a more comprehensive approach in terms of the continuum like ensuring that there are resources to adequately address mental health issues so that people don't even become addicts in the first place through self-medicating then and we're right now we're kind of we jumped ahead to talking about availability of treatment but obviously there's the whole spectrum of harm reduction yeah for people who you know we've talked about people who are in that window and and can't access services but there's also the question of how you get people into that window exactly. and maybe you could yeah. speak a little bit to how you see harm reduction um, not only keeping alive but helping move people towards that window of wanting to get into recovery yeah absolutely I mean I think harm reduction is really great in the sense that it offers like a bridge to move like it's a platform to move into treatment when people are ready and to move into that process and it gives them hope that there are people there that care if they're you know alive or dead and for an example is like at the overdose prevention site we have a young man that I think he's been sober for about a week and a half now or two and he comes in every single night and we're trying to get him into a withdrawal and detox center because he got to the point where he was ready to get help so I think knowing that there is like it's just a platform for people to be able to access that help or to make contact with the system and move on so it's great in that sense and yeah i mean we're keeping people alive long enough so that they are able to go on to other things because the reality is if that's not there then there's an element missing from that that system which i think is a really important perspective and i want to talk to you a bit more about about your work with uh, harm reduction um because one of the things that people who are opposed to harm reduction or safe injection sites, um, like the mayor of Ottawa, um, Jim Watson, um, who Jim Watson is against harm reduction. Um, Jim, if you're listening. Jim, Jim, come on. Um, But one of the the arguments put forward by people like that is we should put money into all the things that you were talking about earlier, having, you know, treatment and funding treatment. Um, We shouldn't be putting money towards facilitating drug use we should put all that money towards treatment I think what you said I mean sort of shows why it's you can't have it either or you sort of have to do both because you have to make sure that people are safe and healthy and you know have the 
platform to be able to get to the point where they want to have treatment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think my like my argument to that is just like treatment dollars do nothing if there's people they're not alive anymore to get that help, right? I mean, like if people if we can't keep them alive long enough for this six month wait of getting into there, then how are we like that? That does nothing. So absolutely, this crisis is just something that requires so many different aspects that come into play and it's no one solution will solve it. So we need to have funds allocated to all the different necessary services and harm reduction is one of them. How do you um, how do you see your role when you're volunteering in a, a supervised consumption site? Um, are you actively trying to build trust and relationships with people in order to eventually help persuade or, or facilitate their transition into treatment or do you view yourself as just a neutral um kind of you're there to keep people safe and that's your only role like how do you so in terms of your engagement with your clients or guests Um, i would say that i mean i try not to i wouldn't want to push anything on anyone i think everyone has the right to determine who how they want to live their lives especially as adults but for me yeah a big part of it is building those connections so obviously i am there to respond to an overdose and that's what we do and we have done um but the other thing is just being honest and being there as a peer who has lived experience. So oftentimes when I am working, like we call it the gallery tent, which is where people do go to uh, shoot up and and they'll say, OK, so who here like used to use drugs? And these are guessing. And I'll say very honestly, like, I'm 10 months into my recovery. And they'll, then that initiates a conversation of them just knowing that it's possible. And then we'll talk about that. So I think it's one thing it kind of offers, you know, you can offer hope, you have a connection with people, like they'll come in and tell us about their day and how things aren't going well, or they'll use our phones to make a phone call to family. So there's just like, it's the connection aspect, which I think is really important when people are so isolated in addiction, but then obviously the life-saving mechanisms there as well. And if people are, you know, looking to access services or if they want to hear about what I think about like the Royal or whatever things are out there, then I'll speak very honestly to that and tell them about my experience and, and try and help them however we can. And as someone in recovery yourself, is it triggering for you to be around so much drug use or do you, does it reinforce, um, you feel good about the place that you're in or like what, how does that work for you? Yeah, I I get that question a lot actually. And I find it actually reinforces, um, like my own recovery in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously when you see people in those conditions, it's not something that I, I want to go back to at all. And I think there is, um, it's triggering in the sense where it can be emotionally taxing in some ways and that just requires a lot of decompressing at the end of the night just because you see people in pain and there's a lot we can't do and we're limited to so it's a three hour window I get to be with them and then I go home and I know they're still out there suffering so in that sense you know it can make you sad but um, in terms of triggering like it doesn't make me want to use at all I find and and just knowing that I'm pretty grounded in my recovery and all those like the little self-care tools that I have like I feel pretty good about it but mm-hmm. yeah. So in Ottawa right now, it seems to be sort of a very interesting time for um, safe consumption sites and harm reduction. We've got the Sandy Hill Community Health Center, I think the OASIS program, is approved and it's moving towards uh, being operational very soon. And then just this this week in Ottawa, there's sort of um, an Ottawa public health sort of emergency or temporary uh, safe injection site that's opening up in the market and then you're involved with something different through um, it's overdose prevention Ottawa, Ottawa yeah. and it's the media is calling it sort of a pop-up yeah. consumption site so maybe and you've talked a little bit about a little bit about your work there but can you tell us sort of what it is why it's there and sort of like if I went there what would I see happening yeah so I mean basically we're there offering people a safe place for them to do their thing as they would do in the street so we're not putting rules and regulations on it we just ask for you know be be polite and respectful and don't be you know whatever 
Um, but yeah, so we've got two different tents set up. So if you were to walk up and approach it as someone who's never been there, you'll see a bunch of friendly faces at our greeter tent. Uh, we've got like snacks laid out for people, some nutritious foods and whatnot um, that are all donation run. And then if you, you kind of go around to the back and there's two separate tents. So one is for, we call it the Tokyo tent and that's our smoking tent. So people do their thing in there. Funny. And then yeah, they, <laughs> our guests made up the name the first night. So they stuck. So um, yeah, so that's that tent. And then we have the bigger one, which is, so the Tokyo one for smoking is staffed with one person who's there watching at all times. And then the gallery tent, which is for injections is, we'll have, you can have five people using at one point in there. And there's three staff on site right there watching at all times. And then that'll include usually like a registered nurse. It'll have like a harm reduction or social worker person. And then someone with lived experience as well. So you have that collection of like insight and knowledge and we're just ready to, we have our protocols to follow as well. And then, so that's kind of what our service looks like. Um, and it's different in the sense that it, I mean, obviously there's, it's, it feels a lot more humanized than what the other service is offering. And I mean, obviously there's a need, I think there's a need for both in the city, but um, yeah, we do offer the smoking tent, which is different that uh, Ottawa Public Health and the interim site is not offering. And you guys set up on city property, but I mean, you don't have permits or yeah. like officials sanctioning from the city so have there been any issues with like the community or police harassment or any sort of difficulties or impediments um i would say that we've faced a little bit of opposition from a couple of neighbors um there are actually quite few of them that have made been making comments and we last night we did have a few of them calling the police for calls to service but i'd actually like commend the police for the way they've been handling it they haven't been bothering us we do have like a police liaison as well and with that, like, I mean, they, they'll sit in the parking lot as they normally do for their shift rotations and doing their whatever police things they do um, in their cars and then they drive off. So we haven't had any approach to the site. They've been really good and they kind of have been managing the neighbors as well and dealing with their complaints. But um, yeah, for the most part, it's been we haven't had any problems. And so um, the it would seem that sort of in response to um, recognizing that there's obviously a need for um, the service that you guys are basically on a volunteer basis providing because of a failure for an institutional response that was fast enough. Um, That's where Mike mentioned the the public health um, temporary facility that I guess now is officially sanctioned by Health Canada as well as a temporary measure. Um, So maybe you could explain a little bit more about why you still see an ongoing need for the so-called pop-up facility when there is now actually an officially sanctioned legal, although temporary, um, site. Because I know um, it seems like some of the the tolerance for the pop-up site on the part of at least some elected officials is starting to wane given that there's now a a legal alternative available. Yeah, so I think that comes down to just the policies that are being followed um, by the interim site set up by OPH is are some of the things that we're kind of concerned about. Um, One of those being that you can only inject once per 20 minutes. Another thing is being like you can't have peer assisted injections and you can't share your drugs. And these aren't just like auto public health like policies, but these are things from a federal level. So those need to be addressed. Um, and by not having by having those regulations, we're worried that people are just going to be not using the site and are be going out to doing their thing in the street. So there's that. Um, there's also the fact that there's only two seats available, and there's a lack of peer consultations being done as the site was going forward. So there's just a lack of the human connection, uh, like the human connection and just the humanity in it. I find um, that's I mean that's my own personal view and just from what I've seen being at that location as well. Like that it's sort of more clinical. It, it yeah. doesn't replicate the kind of conditions the, of use exactly. that people are. Yeah. So so you would say 
that criticism would apply not only to the temporary facility but to your understanding of like that it's it's as a result of the federal regulations so yeah exactly so it's definitely something that I mean they have their certain policies they have to follow and by not allowing you know peer assisted help and not sharing their drugs those are actually we feel increasing the chances of overdose and just having that time regulation and all those things we're worried that it's going to make people feel like they're in a bit more of a rush and may also lead to overdose as well so with your work, speaking of overdoses, have you been present when there's been uh, an overdose at the pop-up site? Yeah, I was there last Tuesday, actually, and we had, that was the first one for, at the Ottawa site that I had seen happen, and I was in the tent as the 911 role, so I was on the phone with ambulance, keeping people calm, and yeah, the young woman, uh, she injected, and the needle was still in her arm, and she went down. So that was, uh, we responded quickly and she, I mean, she needed naloxone and like the nasal, uh, like three hits of it. And then the paramedics arrived, but she was okay. Crazy. That must have been really scary. Uh, yeah, it was intense. I think a lot of it, um, that night was exceptionally busy at the site as well. So we had a lot of just people going in and out. We had a lot of guests hanging around waiting to use. So, I mean, our staff responded phenomenally. We happened to have two nurses in the tent at that point as well, which was great. So they took on the uh, naloxone and the breathing. And then I just kind of managed all the people and I was keeping people calm and on the 911. Um, but they were great. And I mean, even the first responders, like we're very specific to say no police showing up, only paramedics. And that's exactly what happened. So overall, like it was a very smooth experience. But yeah, it was it's intense. <laughs> I mean, I think it certainly shows the need for sort of that harm reduction. And there nationally, there's been a conversation about the number of overdoses and deaths and I mean, at the Supreme Court, when the Insight case first went to the Supreme Court, there was really good evidence put before the trial courts that was considered by the Supreme Court about just how many lives Insight has saved. Yeah. Um, and the other positive impacts that it has uh, around the community and things that you might not think about, like that community businesses were actually in favor of it and that yeah. petty crime in the area of the injection site actually went down. Yeah. Um, which is sort of amazing. And I mean, it's going to be good to see those benefits in Ottawa because we're certainly seeing, you know, the effects of the opioid crisis. I mean, I've had a number of clients who have passed away and a number of clients who have overdosed. And one of my clients who um, was a user um, says that he knows about 15 people who have overdosed in Ottawa. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, does do you see when you're interacting with with sort of the community who's most affected by that, is that something that, you know, weighs on on people who the guests of, of the pop up facility like that they've had friends that have died that they've experienced all this trauma? Is that something that's Ab obvious? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it happens on a regular basis. And they I think at this point, they're so normalized to which is devastating to think about. But they'll just like yesterday, I had a guy he's like, Oh, I overdosed yesterday in front of the chefs. And you know, I lost a friend last week, like it just it's so casual almost at this point, but just everyone essentially in that community has lost someone and even our like our volunteers and our core staff, like there's always grief there. There's always someone, you know, like somebody died in a program someone was found in an alleyway like there's just it's a constant thing and the people that are entrenched and are marginalized most in our community are just constantly in that state of like just getting more and more trauma added onto it as they lose people around them I want to ask you a little bit more about your sort of cross Canada tour that you're doing just trying to engage young people and policymakers and others but what can you tell us if you know about where Ottawa is in the crisis as compared to 
you know, Vancouver or, you know, like there's, there seems to be uh, some places that are a little further behind in terms of the true explosion of the opioid crisis. So what's your yeah. sense based on what you know about where Ottawa is compared to other places? I think, I mean, I think Ottawa's numbers are rising in, in terms of overdoses. I mean, I've heard, you know, you hear stats a lot in the radio and stuff, but um, I know like Vancouver was looking at four deaths a day. I know Ontario, I think we were at about two a day. So there's that. Um, I think it's heavily congested in, in Vancouver in the sense that there's just a, a higher population that is using, so there's more of that risk there. Um, but I mean, Ottawa's, Ottawa's getting hit pretty hard, and it's not just our marginalized populations. Like, it's youth and suburbs, and it's all over the, the spectrum of substance use that are either dying or overdosing. So there's definitely that, and I mean, and it extends right out to the East Coast. Like, we don't hear about it as much, but there are, like, Cape Breton especially is, is being hit really hard with it, and they just don't have the resources or facilities to deal with it either. So, yeah. And so what were you hearing from people when you, it, maybe you could just tell our listeners a little bit yeah, about like, your I recent project. Yeah, like, I want to hear about project. the mechanics. Like, how <laughs> yeah. did you get around? Yeah. What was it like? Um, so I got, I mean, I got the VIA 150 pass. So that was, like, I could travel for an entire month on 150 bucks. So that was, like, what enabled the whole thing to happen. Um, so I did take the train across Canada. But basically, like, I would use social media. Like, I set up a Facebook page, and that's how I would connect with people. So I got involved with groups like Mom Stop the Harm and We the Parents, and I would kind of make connections that way. And then people would hear about it in the media, and they'd contact me. And then, you know, we'd sit down for a coffee shop, and they usually it'd just be they'd share their story. If it was someone who had lost someone or who was affected by it, and just talk about their story and the kind of, like, what led to that death and how that happened and how it made them feel and, and where they see their city is at. Because every, like, I mean... The different cities across Canada have different drugs of choice, so there's different impacts in that sense, and just what the facilities are like across Canada. Um, so yeah, just getting this collective picture as to what was going on. Um, but yeah. And did you notice, I asked you about where Ottawa falls in the spectrum in terms of the opioid crisis itself, but what about access to appropriate services, harm reduction services, for example, yeah. like, did you notice any patterns or um, regional disparities? Like you mentioned Cape Breton being very underprepared. Yeah, like definitely out east, they just like, I mean, like Cape Breton, like again, for example, like 130,000 people on that island, and there's no mental health or detox facility there. So they have to go into Halifax to get it. So that's a huge problem. And they have young people that are dropping like left, right, front, right and center kind of thing. And they're just they don't have the services and their their health ministry or whatever is not adequately prepared to deal with that. Um, and then, yeah, like, I mean, Vancouver is pretty good in the sense that, you know, they obviously are dealing with a lot more, so they have a lot more activism happening there and they have more facilities just in, like, they have overdose prevention sites and insight and all those things operating as well. So I felt like they had, they were a lot more progressive in the harm reduction stuff. Whereas here, you know, we, we are just getting it now. So we're definitely a little bit slower. Um, I know Winnipeg doesn't have any safe injection site when I was there at least so they mm -hmm. had just like a bathroom people could go into with a light and if you're in there for more than five minutes someone goes in and checks on you so I mean like that yeah it really is regionally depending on what the pol like politics are like and what who's act like advocating for what but I think as more people are affected by it more especially when it's coming from a place of grief I think people are starting to listen more mm. I know that's one of the, the sort of sad things and maybe really typical things about sort of this most recent sort of fentanyl and opioid crisis is that it seems to, it can strike any community. Like yeah. like you said, it's not just, you know, the marginalized who live downtown, but it's rural populations, suburban kids, yeah. you know, people who are just recreational users on the weekend. Um, it doesn't discriminate based on age or race or anything. Yeah. And I think that maybe that's why it's getting a bit more play now than it did when we had drug crises in the 80s yeah, and 90s. Absolutely. Because it's like you can be a white suburban person and you can still be affected. Yep. 
Um, and when you've been talking to people, have you noticed anyone sort of react to your personal story? Because, I mean, you come across as sort of like girl next door, yeah. intelligent, <laughs> like educated, um, you know, could yeah. live in the suburbs, right? Oh, like, well, like, I mean, I did, like, I grew up right out in Richmond, you know, so I was a small town kid, and I, I mean, coming from, like, a middle class, educated, university kind of family. So, yeah, I think there's, in that sense, and I think that's why it did pick up the attention that it did, is because I'm just, like, many other people, like, from the suburbs and from average families that are affected by this crisis. So it really can, it can touch anyone. And I think, like you said, it, that's exactly why it's getting um, the attention it is right now. But in terms of uh, reactions and whatnot, I find that a lot of people that I, I did connect with, um, I mean, it was just, I don't know, like it was a very intimate kind of connection in that sense, right? So they, they understood it. But a lot of people that I did speak to weren't just from marginalized populations. Like these were people that in, are in law enforcement and that are in like government positions that lost their children as well. So I think they get where I'm coming from. But um, the media definitely reacted to, to my story, right? It's not your typical one, but. Mm -hmm. And yet maybe it is. Well, yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, but for the public, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's unfortunate that it takes that to yeah. get like a broader conversation going in the public about how to keep people alive that it somehow implies yeah of different kind of value judgment about whose life is worth preserving yeah. but at least as a result of this this is not going to exclude the people who've typically not been um the subject of the same levels of sympathy um and so it's it's unfortunate that it would take something like that but at least i like mean change is happening yeah, yeah and we were talking sense, before yeah. we started recording about um really how far we've come in a relatively short time in yeah. terms of policymakers and elected officials finally understanding harm being reduction it, yeah. and being open to it and in some cases openly advocating for it and um, just how quickly that snowballs into it becoming more tolerated by the public and exactly you know. yeah I think we are moving to that point and I mean it's fantastic like I think oftentimes when you're so entrenched in it that you forget to realize how far you're coming because it just feels like we're constantly climbing an uphill battle but public perception has changed like I mean and I often like I do unfortunately still hear the word like junkie being thrown around a lot but I think it's being used less and people are starting to come around to the fact that this is a health crisis it's not like a criminal problem and so the more we can change that and start addressing it with compassion and empathy, I feel like the better chance we have of saving people. I saw that um, Jagmeet Singh visited the pop-up injection site. Yeah. Which, I mean, number one, I want to ask you, is he as well-dressed and fashionable in <laughs> oh, person as he seems? Absolutely, is he? yeah. He was, like, fully decked out in his nice little suit and stuff, like, very classy looking. How can he ride a bike and wear that suit and I not know. be, like, a hot, sweaty mess, like, I, Yeah, it's, the day? it blows me away. Like, he was just so, even the night he came, like, I mean, if you look at the picture, like, we were all just, like, drenched in sweat. He's just there looking perfect. I'm like, man. <laughs> Yeah, like he's so photogenic and just like was someone powdering so, his face come on no okay. I don't know. I mean, maybe he came from the air conditioned car but it, yeah no it was a it was really great to see that and i mean he kept it very low-key which i respected as well like it didn't seem like it was um, a public relations kind of event or a press thing like it it felt like he actually cared and we spoke about decriminalization and his experience as a criminal defense lawyer so i thought that was really it was a great experience honestly and i mean his position is um he's advocated for decriminalization which um i'm fully support i think that's yeah. a great idea but i think 
also him being there shows maybe how far we've come because I yeah. can imagine like someone who's vying for the leadership of a major political party yeah. going to like an injection an site yeah, like absolutely. five years ago, ten years ago. Like yeah, I can't imagine it that ever happened. Yeah, I mean I know we have like the Toronto mayor and he visited their overdose prevention site as well. So we're starting to have politicians that are looking to support it and want to see what's happening because I mean for the most of the general population we've never seen someone you know inject a drug into their vein or do anything like that. So it's just it's pretty eye opening that these people that would normally never experience this are now willing to put themselves in those situations and are are being present for that. It's actually probably really important. Like we've talked before about the importance of judges going to jails and seeing where they're sending people. It's really not in an abstract way wrapping their heads around the conditions of incarceration and solitary confinement. And I think it's kind of the same thing as like to humanize the experience of using and for people, you're right, for whom it's probably a really, really remote experience to actually go and see that these are real people that are suffering and that are worth keeping alive, you know? Absolutely, yeah, I think, and like, and that's exactly it, it's humanizing it because it's so easy for people to just be cut off from it and just to assume it's like a subhuman moral failure of some form and just Mm -hmm. to discard it as well it's their choice they choose to be addicted they choose to use drugs but when you actually put yourself there and you see someone who's suffering and who is just like underweight and is just in so much pain and they use and like you just it, it really does show like this is a person whether and whatever their life circumstances are they deserve to live and they deserve a dignity of life and i think the more that we can get the public perception and policies and our politicians on board then that's how change is going to happen so if you're listening to this and you're a relatively progressive person and you're looking to affect change or to help out i mean what can the average person do like if you're not able to volunteer at a, at a pop-up site yeah. or anything like that like what can someone do to help I think that, well, I mean, I, writing letters, I would say, I mean, normally I wouldn't really say like it does much, but I think right now what we're looking at is getting that support, like having that public, I mean, obviously, you know, politicians react to what like the public wants. And I think if we can have people writing to their counselors and writing to mayors and writing to, you know, even school boards to start changing the way we approach this crisis, that contributes. And I mean, if they can make donations to these overdose prevention sites that are operating and providing essential community health services, then do that as well. But really just keep putting the support out there. I mean, social media is great for that, like all those kind of things and educating and having conversations with your children and with your family members about not stigmatizing people and using appropriate terminology and just, yeah, getting educated on the whole thing and approaching it with compassion and just, you know, just trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about what it would feel like to be so isolated and addicted and then how can we help those people most in whatever way is possible. And there might be value too in also writing to federal officials because based on what you've said, um, we have a new health minister, um, Jeanette Pettipa-Taylor, who, I mean, it seems like there is a real openness on the federal level to um, improving the system and they've already come a long way in terms of relaxing the requirements that had been imposed by the previous government when it came to supervised consumption facilities, but also just to... Um, write letters of support um, for the for the um, policy, but also maybe to suggest that there's a need for an ongoing reevaluation and potentially loose, further loosening of some of the requirements yeah. to ensure that there aren't um, 
too many barriers to For accessing that are accessing those services absolutely and maybe encouraging like sanctioning all the other applications that are in right now for safe injection sites because there there's some in ottawa and there's some across canada like the more we can get those immediate sanctions the more we can get those up and running and have actual legal health facilities operating and offering people that that sense of hope and safety and we talked a bit before also about um the potential approval of some mobile facilities um yeah. which might help in removing some of the barriers and would also maybe mitigate the need for a pop-up facility that it, once we have sufficient sanctioned permanently anchored sites that there could be an ongoing because i know there is already a mobile needle exchange um yeah the site van does that yeah, yeah i think from 5 to eleven thirty or something around those hours so they'll go around and i think you can call them from what i understand and they'll come to you and yeah. deliver that so i think that's great and if we were able to yeah have a mobile thing that could go around and you know, meet people where they are at. I think that's really important. And you, you build that connection. They let you let them do their thing, make sure they're safe. So I think it'd be great. Yeah, the more services we can provide. Yeah, really going to where people are. So you make sure yeah. you you get all of all of the possible communities you can. And I know that those connections are so important. Like, and even the clients that I deal with, just even if they're in custody, even if they have continued to commit offenses, even if they are, you know, not concerned about their own health, just having someone who's always there to yeah. assist them even for small things like getting your health card back yeah. and just you like know sort of those basics things, right? that are yeah. hard to do when you're when you're fall when you've fallen through the cracks yeah. i mean i think that's a good thing so where can people get in touch with you if they want to follow you yeah um, well i guess i'm on twitter so that's definitely one of them uh so my like twitter handle is atar layla so a-t-t-a-r-l-e-i-l-a uh, and the same on Facebook as well. And then, uh, yeah, that would be the best way, I'd say, to uh, to reach me. Or you can email me at voicescrosscan at gmail.com. And that's just kind of how I do speaking engagement setups and all that kind of stuff as well. Great. And people can also follow um, Overdose Prevention Ottawa yeah, on Twitter, which is O-D. O-D uh, Prevention O-T-T, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So check out the good work that all those folks are doing as well. Yeah. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming yeah, in. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's thank great you. to finally meet you. Yeah, you as well. <laughs> good luck and keep up the good work. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more uh, at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter at M Spratt. Thanks for listening.